EK Publishing Media presents the Apocalypse Theater Podcast with Benjamin Allen, Episode 7. We often go through changes we don't expect, but our young heroine for this story is about to go through a dark time in her life that will impact the entire universe. A Message Out of Time 1. Katie Ahn felt the tickling on her arm. It was morning twilight when the dull purple light of the sky cast that blue glow through the blinds covering the window. Katie slapped the spot on her arm and opened her eyes to see the window ahead beyond the mashed ant upon her skin. She felt that moment of knowing that she would have to get ready and go to school, to perform, to exist, and to be presentable before her confidence agreed that this was an easily doable task. Sliding out of bed, Katie pulled on a pair of black sweatpants and a t-shirt before heading to the bathroom. Katie's father, Victor Ahn, sat at the kitchen table watching the flat-screen television in the living room as he drank his morning coffee while her mother, Minso Ahn, prepared breakfast. Both had short black hair that was slowly becoming salted with white, and both were so proud of Katie that if she were to make any misstep, a missed answer on a test, a lost point in track, or God forbid, start dating a boy, she would be grounded to her room without television for a year. When Katie entered the room, her mother scolded her for staying up too late the evening before. That's why you're tired, her mother pursed her lips as Katie sat at the table beside her father and rested her chin on her hands. Back straight, or you'll look like a hunchback, he said in his proper American English. Their family was Korean-American, her mother from Seoul, but her father raised by his family in Chicago who had immigrated to America in the 60s after the Korean War had ended. Victor and Minso had met during a family trip to see Victor's grandparents, and the rest is history. She already in trouble because of the computer all the time, said her mother as she dumped scrambled eggs onto the plate for Katie. How long you sit in front of computer, six, seven hours a day? She clicked her tongue. Katie didn't deem the question worthy of a response, and her mother didn't expect one. She threw some toast and a bowl of warm oatmeal onto the plate and put it down in front of Katie before she began chopping up some bananas, apples, and strawberries. The morning droned on for Katie. She went to her physics class for first period and stared straight ahead at the jumble of equations that were giving more than half the class trouble. Katie had already finished the day's homework so she didn't spend time focusing on the teacher's desperate attempts to get the students to understand. She saw the place on her arm where the ant had crawled and saw that it was still a shade of pink from the impact. For one moment, all was as it should have been. Normal, carrying on as usual, and then everything changed. Katie felt the dull droning of the teacher's voice melt to a slow drawl that creeped through her like molasses. She tried to blink, but even that took an unbelievable amount of time. In that sensation, a freedom from time came to her. Time no longer mattered as it had never really mattered before. It was a human concept, time, and had everything to do with the fleeting moments humans count up to their deaths. In essence, time was a Katie thing, and Katie had officially left the building. 2. Mr. Falgu was going over his personal physics curriculum, a trail that he had followed every year for the last 22 years of his professional teaching life. The schools and standardized testing that had evolved throughout the school system over the last few decades had curbed his agenda significantly in favor of the students who couldn't seem to get the theories. Didn't try to get the theories would be more accurate, but he droned on year after year anyway. He knew Katie Ahn wasn't paying attention as she looked straight ahead, but it was a different kind of zoning out than the lethargic stare of her peers. She had the highest grade in the class, so he knew her issue was that of true boredom. He didn't blame her. In fact, he envied her. 
Mr. Falgu would give anything in the world to show her all the beautiful things mathematics has to offer in ways that she could actually comprehend. He envied her because she had a brilliant career of learning ahead of her at any Ivy League school of her choosing. It was unfortunate that he would likely not have the opportunity to enrich and aid in her education process while being forced to dumb down his explanations so the slowest members of the class could keep up. Test scores, student ranking, and lowering the standard of acceptance had made a complete mess of the U.S. education system. This thought crossed his mind in an instant before he realized that Katie had stood up. He paused in mid-sentence, perplexed by what was happening. Howard Falgu had seen a lot of students do a lot of things, but Katie seemed utterly bewildered by the room around her. The strangest part was her eyes. At first, he thought that she had painted her eyelids with Sharpie, but then realized that her eyes were wide open. They were black and unblinking. Um, Miss Ahn, if you could please take your seat, he said, but something was not right. She was as still as a statue. Katie didn't appear to even be breathing. All eyes in the class were on her. Miss Ahn. Falgu took a step forward, but before he could do or say anything else, Katie turned and walked out of the classroom. The class began murmuring to one another as the door slipped shut behind her. Howard was already walking toward the door when the bell to change classes rang throughout the corridor outside. Its sudden blaring monotone had startled him. He barely had time to pull the door back when students began flooding through the halls. He stepped out as his class gathered their things and readied to leave. He didn't see Katie. She had disappeared within the crowd of teenagers and there were dozens of black-haired girls mixed with the surge of kids who were all wearing the same school uniform. All right, read through chapter 12 and come back with assignment sheets 11 and 12 finished and in the tray first thing tomorrow, Falgu said absently, his eyes scanning the crowds of kids. He couldn't shake the odd feeling accompanying what he had just witnessed. 3. Though Jackie Martinez had only worked at the North Richland Hills Public Library for two years, she knew it was odd when the teenage girl wearing a uniform from the nearby Martin Academy Preparatory School stepped in through the sliding glass doors of the library and immediately went to the nearest public computer. She logged in through her library ID, which Jackie looked up. Her ID confirmed her as Caitlin Ahn at a house on Emerald Hills Way in North Richland Hills. While the computer typically told her information about who was using the computers, it required confirmation from their network provider to actually see what an individual was viewing. Feeling like a call to the school truancy officer might be in order, Jackie got up and crept over to the computer station behind Katie Ahn, who either didn't notice her presence or didn't care. Jackie tried to look busy at the computer, but casually looked over her shoulder to see Katie's screen. That's when things got weird. The windows on the desktop screen of the computer that Katie was using, a relatively new PC that the library offered for public use, were flashing rapidly across the screen, impossibly. They had a T3 connection, but even that couldn't accommodate for the extreme speed at which her computer seemed to be moving. All attempts at making her presence subtle were abandoned as Jackie gaped at Katie's computer. Websites were appearing and disappearing on the monitor in flashes. It was a strange sight, like Katie was absorbing the information instantaneously. Her head didn't move. Her hand was on the mouse, but she didn't seem to need it or the keyboard as she interfaced with the computer seamlessly. She had straight, shoulder-length black hair, small build, and thin, pale arms that rested on the desk ledge. As she drew closer, she could see the curvature of the girl's cheeks and the high, pronounced cheekbones that was a signature of the Korean face. Miss? Jackie said, looking down at the girl. She was about to say more, but then she saw Katie's eyes. They were pitch black, like that of a demon. Jackie took a step back and swallowed, fear coursing through her chest and numbing her arms. Katie? 
she said, trying to earn back some of her courage, but it was too much. Jackie hurried back to her computer at the front desk and put her hand on the phone. Who should she call? The truancy officer? The police? Her manager? If it had just been Katie sneaking out of school to visit the library, Jackie would have called the truancy officer, but this was something else. Jackie picked up the phone and put it to her ear. Electronic noise screamed from the speaker. Glaring, she pressed one of the plastic numbers on the phone, but it didn't do anything to interrupt the white noise coming from the other end. Putting the phone back on its cradle, Jackie bent over to look at her computer that was now having a fit of its own as the screen flashed and flickered different sections of the monitor. The lights overhead began to blink on and off maddeningly. Jackie pushed a rack of books aside and went around the corner to the front door, where the sliding glass doors failed to trigger. For a horrible moment, Jackie felt trapped with whatever it was that Katie had become, like a grasshopper who had been dropped into a cage with a tarantula. Terror filled her as the lights went off completely. Jackie spared a glance over her shoulder and saw that the computer before the strange girl behind her was the only device still functional within the library. She struggled as she couldn't seem to push the glass doors open fast enough. Squeezing through the opening, a small sense of relief eased her nerves as she ran through the foyer that was bright with morning light. She pried the exit glass doors apart and ran to her car. When the fob wouldn't work to open it, Jackie ran to the road. She wanted to get as far away from Katie on as humanly possible. 4. Brian Reed, the battalion chief of the Tarrant County Fire Department, started receiving calls of a mass electrical outage in the central North Richland Hills area just after 9 in the morning. He had just come back from a two-week vacation, so it was typical that the shit would hit the fan on his first day back. At least it was better that he could be here than having to coordinate from a cabin in the Rocky Mountains. Unfortunately, within an hour the problem escalated from what seemed like a minor electrical outage to a state of emergency as most of Tarrant County began experiencing a major power issue. Fort Worth was officially shut down as the streetlights blinked for a few minutes with backup power before the backup generators went as well. Brian deployed the necessary public services to accommodate the citizens of the county, but by lunch the operation was taken over by Homeland Security. The entire North Texas area was experiencing an extreme blackout as Dallas began reporting outages as well. It seemed that within two hours, and over a minor electrical anomaly, the entire metroplex of nine million people had been brought to its knees. Students of every school in every district in Tarrant County were sent home after lunch and the road systems were gridlocked with traffic as people were unable to remain at work without power. The only silver lining to all of this was that it was October in Texas so the weather was a gentle 65 degrees Fahrenheit during the well-coordinated chaos that ensued throughout the afternoon. Brian knew that if they had not planned and coordinated constantly for events such as these, it could have been much worse. A few crimes were reported, but there were no mass riots or vandalisms, for now at least. He knew that if this outage continued for more than a day or two, things would get much worse. To everyone's great relief, the power started to kick back on at 6 in the evening. It had been completely unresponsive until 5.58pm when the transformers began to cycle back online as normal. By 7.30pm, the Metro Mess was back to business and all was as it should be other than the remaining gridlock that would probably continue into the next day. The total cost of the relatively small incident that would later be known as the 2018 Day of Darkness was around $250,000, a small but painful expense on the Dallas and Tarrant County taxpayers. During the following week, Brian and every official involved in the recovery process were required to type up a report of what happened that day, which would later be reviewed and recorded by the U.S. Department of State. 
Bryan's statement and those of his cabinet and his people's people down to the very citizens that held the weight of the society they worked day in and day out to create, and one Jackie Martinez who filed a very interesting official report with the North Richland Hills Police Department, would point the finger to the source of the catastrophe at 7969 Emerald Hills Way, North Richland Hills, Texas 76180, where a young girl named Caitlin Ahn lived until her mysterious disappearance a week prior, just moments before the day of darkness began. 5. Restroom and food, 2.15 a.m., Exxon Gas Station, at 20 Northampton Road. Joe Bowerman typed into his notes app on his Android touchscreen as he slid out of his big rig and walked to the gas station. He felt exhausted just walking to the building. He had gained 25 pounds since he got his CDL and started working for Camden Enterprises shipping computer equipment and hardware to Office Max, Staples, and Office Depot stores throughout the South. It was a lucky job to get, but the pay was only okay, $16.50 an hour, which some might consider generous. It wasn't as much as he had hoped he would make while going through the company training, but he was satisfied with just having work. His phone vibrated in his hands and Linda Pearson, his girlfriend's name, flashed over the screen. Hey, sweetheart, I was just about to call you, he answered. No, you weren't, she said jokingly. Where are you? I'm about to head to the warehouse and then I'll be headed back to the apartment. I should be home in at least two hours. Everything okay? Heard the power went out all over town earlier. Yeah, everything's fine now, said Linda. Even the traffic is getting better on the map, so you shouldn't have any trouble getting home. Sounds perfect, then I will see you in a few hours. He put a little charm in his voice and Linda rewarded it with a giggle. Be careful out there. See you soon. She hung up, leaving Joe looking at the blank phone screen. He pocketed the phone and went inside the gas station to piss. He came back out and plugged up the green diesel nozzle to the gas tank. Leaning against the side of the truck, Joe felt the first cold of the year in the wind. He listened to the truck guzzle the fuel as he watched and listened to the traffic speeding through the freeway beyond the grassy ditch ahead. The grass seemed to sway with every gust of wind sent by the perpetual flow of traffic. The girl appeared in his sight like something out of a horror movie. She had long, matted black hair and an eerie darkness around her eyes in the dim light of the Exxon station's glow. The girl looked up and met his gaze. Her eyes seemed opaque and black as she climbed over the curb of the parking lot and walked directly up to Joe. She touched his hand for a second and without skipping a beat, walked around to the passenger side of the truck. Joe felt a relaxing numbness come over him. It was as if he had taken a miraculous drug that made his mind go fuzzy. All thoughts of Linda deserted him. He hardly even realized that he was climbing back into the truck as the gas continued to glug into his gas tank. He started up the truck and put it into first gear. His body did all of this as second nature to his task of getting the girl to where she needed to be. He didn't need to ask questions or worry about what was happening, he just did as he was asked and that was fine. The truck lurched forward, the gas nozzle unplugging from the truck's gas tank and releasing diesel gasoline all over the channel between the pumps. To their great fortune, the impact of the nozzle on the ground caused the auto siphon catch to slip and caused the gas to shut off, which allowed them to put more distance between them and the Exxon gas station before an attendant went out to put the gas gun back in its cradle. The attendant chalked the whole thing up to a mistake and didn't even report the incident. The next time Joe's name came up was the following afternoon when two officers came out to review the surveillance tapes after the police found Joe's last known location based on his last credit card usage. His girlfriend had reported him missing earlier that afternoon after he didn't come home when he said he would, and his company confirmed that he didn't check in at his reported check-in time. The police watched the tapes from the Exxon gas station. 
They saw Joe leaning against his truck, his head cocked in the direction of something out of the camera's view, and then snow filled the screen. The two officers blinked as they fast-forwarded the feed to when it picked up again. The truck and Joe were gone, vanished into thin air. The only thing left was the diesel nozzle lying under the carport in the little puddle of gasoline on the concrete. Otherwise, there was not a single trace of Joe, his truck, or whoever had taken him. 6. State Patrol Officer Darlene Bolton was starving as she had another 15 minutes before her shift broke for lunch at 4 a.m. Her patrol car was hidden by a copse of trees along Highway I-20 near Wood Springs, about 30 minutes northwest of Tyler, Texas. She sat in the driver's seat, drumming her thumbs impatiently. An amber alert had been issued earlier the previous afternoon for a young Korean-American girl who had disappeared from school. The thought made Darlene stop drumming. No sooner did a no-color white trailer amble into view, rolling down the highway like a big fat caterpillar. She'd received a be-on-the-lookout notice about an hour earlier for a white semi-trailer with a Texas plate possibly in the central North Texas area. While that probably wasn't our guy, and Darlene could easily just go eat 10 minutes early and have an extra 20 minutes to take a rest in her car, she decided to scope out the plate by pulling out behind the truck. She glanced at the notice on her computer monitor. Texas plate ending in 5849. The driver was named Joseph Bowerman, 511, short brown hair, green eyes, 32-year-old male. Darlene glanced up and saw the 5849. She naturally switched on her lights. The truck's brake lights flashed at the sight of Darlene's epileptic red and blue lights in the side mirror. It dropped speed, lowering to 45, then 30, then gradually to a stop on the side of the freeway. Darlene called it in over dispatch, checked her mirror to make sure the freeway was clear, and then stepped out. As she made her way along the side of the road, the crunch of the asphalt beneath her boots, the whining screech of a motorcyclist in the distance echoed through the channel of trees housing the freeway. Darlene put a finger to her left ear as she approached along the driver's side of the trailer. She clicked on her flashlight as the cyclist's crotch rocket engine screamed past her. She didn't hear the passenger door of the truck open and close over the noise. The cyclist's cry depleted to a low hum as the road turned and he was out of sight. Darlene saw a fat, hairy arm slumped out the window of the truck as she approached the cabin. Sir? she yelled, unbuttoning the strap on her gun holster as she kept the flashlight trained on his face. She didn't expect to shoot anyone, but something didn't feel right. The arm was too lax, the fingers of his hand too still. It was like he was asleep. The heavy idle of the truck continued to roll and rumble around them. Sir! Darlene projected her voice. He showed no movement. He was either asleep, drunk, or dead. Darlene walked a few paces in front of the truck, leaning to speak into her shoulder radio. She clicked the button, but it didn't make the familiar click back that she was used to. She pressed it again and realized it was dead. She looked through the glaring headlights of the semi that was staring her down, ominous like a carcass on the side of the road. Its brights filled the channel ahead. The hydraulic hiss of the truck sent a shiver down her spine. She glanced down the left of the vehicle and then to the right. She clicked her radio again, slowly turning around so she didn't have to look at the truck's ridiculously bright lights. This is Officer Darlene Bolton. Does anyone read me? She listened to the empty quiet save for the idle thrum of the truck's engine behind her. She started turning back to the truck when the light of her flashlight flashed upon a pair of black eyes standing at the edge of the tree line. She squinted at it and saw a pale white face. Screaming filled Darlene's mind, a raw, scraping scream that made her heart seize with primordial fear. It was the sound of a man's scream, a man that she recognized at once. She dropped all composure and ran for her car. 
The screaming man's torment continued with her as she ran past the trailer toward her car. The lights had gone out. The street lamps marching down the highway's edge began to blink off at once. Darlene threw open the patrol car's door and got inside. The screaming stopped the moment she slammed the door closed behind her. Hands shaking, Darlene tried to turn the key and the ignition back and forth as the car had died entirely. It was like something out of a nightmare. The computer was off and the patrol car wouldn't start. While she should have felt safe within her car, she didn't. The need to put as much distance between her and the stretch of highway negated all sense and reason. Darlene got out of the car into the darkness. The screams did not return. She drew her gun but ran west along the road just as Jackie Martinez had run at the library earlier the previous morning in North Richland Hills. Darlene had recognized the scream in her mind earlier, but hadn't been able to pin where she remembered it until 15 minutes later as she walked along the oncoming traffic side of the freeway. A few cars passed and she wanted to stop them, to warn them not to go that way, but as she walked she couldn't believe what had happened to her. The scream she had heard was that of her father, the day he had lost his leg after the truck he was working on jumped off the wedge and rolled onto his calf. He had screamed an inhuman, guttural roar as his foot jerked of its own accord on the other side of the big tire before it spasmed to a dead halt. Darlene had been helping him, but she didn't know what to do, so she just stood there, watching him scream without understanding before he screamed at her to run and call 911 through his shrieks. It had been so clear, the cries of her father, as if it was happening all over again. Darlene jogged back to her department and grudgingly reported to Sergeant Gary Lowry what had happened on that short span of highway. An hour later, when the department sent two patrol cars out to investigate the location just as the sun was beginning to give the eastern horizon its blue hue, they found the semi still sitting on the side of the road. Darlene's patrol car and Joe Bowerman were gone. The four officers were told to look for anything strange, but they didn't find anything other than the abandoned semi-truck that was short on gas. That and the electronics on the thing were toast. Detectives from Tyler were dispatched to gather evidence. Other than Joe's prints, they didn't find any other prints or evidence other than Joe's presence within the vehicle. The patrol car was later reported found in Nashville, Tennessee in a Denny's parking lot. A steady trickle of a lead threaded a path that would later be uncovered by investigators, but no agency seemed able to keep up with Katie Ahn's movements in real time. One thing the investigators did note later was that every piece of computer equipment in the trailer of the truck had been fried, leading the succession of events involving Katie Ahn and her mysterious visitor east. 7. What really happened at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. on July 16, 2018 would always be disputed. Of course, history becomes fuzzy to incidents like these, and the truth is in the eye of the beholder. The most universally agreed-upon version of events, the events that had been accepted and restated from media outlet to media outlet, was that a hacker broke into the Pentagon and compromised the data of top-secret security files. Bad, but not too bad. The truth, however, was that what happened was a total and complete shitstorm. Nothing was recorded because all security cameras went out due to what was later deemed a power glitch. There were no eyewitnesses because at approximately 11.34pm almost every living creature in the building suffered from a mass epileptic seizure caused by a sharp rise in ambient atmospheric pressure that was felt as far as six blocks away. People in the DC metro also experienced the spontaneous seizure that was later said to have affected an estimated total of 22,000 people, the largest body of people to be affected by a seemingly paranormal anomaly in US history. The seizures lasted around 15 minutes before subsiding. The hospitals were filled to capacity with citizens who were deemed to have experienced some form of mental trauma but were in perfectly good health as far as any doctor could diagnose. 
The only man who was completely unaffected by the event was an electromagnetic engineer named Paul Davidson. 8. Professor Paul Davidson patiently waited for his assistant's seizure to finish before he gave one of his rare shouting grunts. Dorothy Wells got to her feet, brushing herself off. She had short brown hair and wore a blue dress with white trim around the bottom beneath her lab coat. In the midst of the mysterious spasm that had jerked her to the floor, Davidson had rounded the corner to see her light pink panties hugging her bottom as she kicked and jerked. Having gathered all important information, he had turned his wheelchair and rolled toward the phone. He had pressed the red rubber emergency services button on the keypad and turned to wait. If he weren't crippled and deaf, he might have tried to help more, but sometimes you have to accept the hand you're dealt. My God, said Dorothy, what the hell happened? Davidson was able to read her words on her lips. She stared straight ahead, blinking rapidly and pressing her hand to her forehead. Davidson gave a guttural grunt, glaring at Dorothy. She finally looked at him and he looked at her. He gave a sharp turn of his chin to the right. He turned his motorized wheelchair around and rolled between the lab tables. He parked in one of the avenues between the tables before pointing toward a corner of the room where the stainless steel iron station was mounted on the wall. Dorothy looked in the direction, not understanding, until she saw the small white hands gripping the black stone tabletop of the far table. Who is that? Dorothy walked over and rounded the table. A teenage Korean girl in a school uniform and plaid skirt with long black hair crouched behind the edge. She looked up at Dorothy and Dorothy took an instinctive step backward at the sight of a set of opaque black eyes. Please don't be alarmed, a voice spoke in her mind. It was a man's deep baritone, so hearing it as if it came from the girl was disorienting. The girl stood up straight and turned toward Dorothy, who was so terrified that she couldn't move. Behind her, Davidson was ringing his finger in his ear. It was the first time he had ever heard a voice in his life. My name, the girl continued, is impossible for you to understand, so you can call me by this girl's name, Katie. Dorothy spared a glance at Professor Davidson, who was staring at the girl intently. She looked at him and seemed just as fascinated by him as he was of her. Such silence is so beautiful. Davidson's eyes widened at the knowledge of being addressed and being able to actually understand what was said without having to read lips. It was something he had never felt before, like losing a fingernail, the exposed skin feeling the cold of the wind for the first time. Why? began Dorothy, finding her voice. Why are you here? She didn't mean it how it came out, but somehow it translated. An exchange of information. Katie spoke through both of their minds. What information? Dorothy asked. Katie looked between Dorothy and Professor Davidson. Everything. I have assimilated every byte of your 32 yottabytes of internet data, and I have assimilated all of the Pentagon's data that has been deemed classified to the general public. How is that possible? Dorothy asked. Most of our top security is in paper documents. Katie looked to Dorothy and smiled. I don't need physical access to information, not when I have a populace of human knowledge to pick through. All of your documents are accessed routinely by some level of security personnel at any given time. I just needed to get to the heart of DC and I'd have no trouble gathering all of the sensitive information that is available in your minds. Davidson rolled forward, glaring at Katie. Why? you ask. Katie spoke through them in response to Davidson's thoughts. Because even though we have two of your Earth years, four months, and eight days before a coronal mass ejection will wipe out all life on your planet, your species is not ready for the inevitable catastrophe that will follow. Katie walked to the dry erase board on the far wall and quickly wiped away the week's worth of data that had been scrawled over it with the eraser. She had to drag a chair from one of the lab tables in order to reach the top parts of the board. 
She started from the top left and worked her way across the board from top to bottom and left to right. The most advanced physics equations in human history mixed with massive untapped realms of quantum theory equations in blue marker. It was insane to watch. Davidson adjusted his glasses on his nose, reading the mess Katie was scribbling at inhuman speeds. Pure madness, all of it. Just complex numbers and ratios and variables merged with garbage. It was the only way Davidson could put it. The equations were totally bogus. None of it made any sense to him. She wrote small as well, filling every space of the dry erase board with blue-markered nonsense. What might have taken an intelligent physicist a few weeks to put into scientific terms took only 15 minutes for Katie. She filled the entire board with her handwriting as if it meant something to anyone, and jumped off the chair to finish the last bottom left corner of space. She wrapped up the final equation and shook her hand as her fingers began to shake uncontrollably. Human muscles are such a hindrance, but this is what I have translated through your archaic scientific language. Tunneling through the galaxy will be your only chance of survival. This is key. She pointed at the blackboard and then gripped her chest. Tremors began rattling the girl's body as though whatever was holding her was beginning to lose control. Don't make the same mistake we did on Archon 6. At that moment, Katie's brown eyes returned as she took a huge gulp of air. Then she blacked out. 9. Katie Ahn woke in a facility in the CDC. Her parents had been flown in and they were at her bedside once a full diagnosis confirmed that Katie was indeed a perfectly healthy young 17-year-old girl. She had no recollection of anything that had happened between her physics class and when she came to, her right hand handcuffed to the hospital bed. She didn't mention anything to the doctors as they ran psychological tests on her for the following two weeks to further assess that she hadn't suffered any trauma during the strange episode. Once they returned to Fort Worth, however, the recurring dreams began. She was able to go to school and catch up with her schoolwork, but she frequently found herself unable to concentrate. Her mind was flooded with memories or dreams or memories of dreams. It was strange because she knew that she was never really there, at that other place, but she still remembered it the way you remember a vacation away from home years later. You have short clips of memory from certain moments that might be and are almost always slurred events that were compressed into five or six total memories. It was probably the mind's way of compartmentalizing a memory that was enjoyable but not relevant to the current cause. But that other place, she could remember every detail so vividly. She could see everything through a blue hue, even the humidity of the sanctuary where she and her insect-like brethren had lived for a millennia. She remembered the translations she did instinctively. The sanctuary walls were covered with every bit of information she and her family had collected. They converted mass values of data into darts, a marking that held terabytes worth of information. Occasionally, between the instinctual scratch of her host's telepathic learning from her world, Katie was able to do a bit of her own writing. She wanted to detail from her perspective what it was like to be that thing. It all seemed silly in retrospect, as she snapped out of her daydream in English class. Meanwhile, the world was bracing itself for the coming event. Right before Katie's visitor left her body, every smartphone, computer, and television in the D.C. area was bombarded with the image of the dry erase board. The internet got a hold of it and Katie's host's visit became common knowledge. To 99% of people, the image was cryptic but easily dismissible. A number of scientists were able to confirm that, while unorthodox, much of what was comprehensible in Katie's now infamous blue marker dry erase board event was legitimate quantum theory. Scientists had mused a little in the realm of quantum mechanics, but Katie wrote precise, well-detailed equations that had every potential of actually giving them an engine that could bypass the basic laws of physics. 
After more scientists came out of the woodwork to support Katie's theory, the concept translated into a device that was capable of creating its own slipstream, or tunnel if you will, that would be able to carry a physical object over vast stretches of space by punching a hole through the fabric of space-time itself. The theoretical drive was beginning to be known as the slipstream drive. Within a year, theory became fact as countries around the world began producing their own version of the SD. Unfortunately, many disputed how Katie could know about the coronal mass ejection. The sun didn't seem to be behaving any differently. Regardless, the general consensus was that Katie had been telling the truth. If she was able to grab the SD drive out of the ether, then why wouldn't she be right about the coronal mass ejection? Katie, after graduating from high school, wrote a book about what happened on the other side against her parents' wishes. They said it brought shame to the family for her to be caught up in that nonsense, but Katie released the book anyway. It was a bestseller for 16 weeks straight, which gave her the financial security to leave her parents' home and live in an apartment in New York City. One of the perks of the world believing its end was inevitable was that rent prices had become unbelievably cheap. Two years after the premonition, most everyone on Earth had boarded a spacecraft with an SD engine, even if it was largely experimental technology. What did anyone have to lose? Ships had already figured out how to travel back and forth from Alpha Centauri within a few weeks. Most ships were headed to different super-Earths where its inhabitants could live in peace or battle out their differences in newly formed governments. It all happened too fast. There was no time to acclimate to the wealth of information. Two months before the sun was timed to turn Earth into a hellscape, or possibly nothing would happen at all according to many theories, Katie was still on Earth. She and a number of others were waiting for the technology to become streamlined a bit more before leaving. She had already purchased her ticket for one of the last ships that would be built before the end. No one knew if the premonition would come to pass or not, but everyone acted like it would. The world had changed in the blink of an eye as humanity was lifted to a species that no longer needed its home satellite around the wise old sun. 10. One of Katie's last memories before leaving Earth was of Egypt. Just a month before she was set to disembark the planet forever, she was contacted by a man named Joseph Pike. He was an Egyptologist as well as a highly respected member of the scientific community for his parallels between the Sphinx and the Sphinx Temple, and a tomb that was found 26 miles southwest of the Pyramid of Djoser. I know this seems unorthodox, but I read your book and, well, I think seeing is believing, Joseph assured her via email. A week later, fighting the sandy winds gusting from the Nile River, Katie, her father, and Joseph got out of the jeep in front of an area that looked like it had been inhabited about 10,000 years prior. 95% of the location was buried, but one could see structures peeking from the mounds of sand circling an unearthed excavated section of the ancient civilization. Watch a step! He led them into a cool passage that traveled deep into the earth. Once the passage opened to a hazy blue hall with scratches and scribbles covering almost every surface area of the walls and ceiling, Katie realized that she recognized everything. She burst into a run down the steps, her eyes darting around the ancient towering walls and pillars. To anyone else, all of this would seem like chicken scratch, but Katie not only knew how to read the strange language, but she was also able to translate it as well. I can't believe I'm actually standing here, Katie said as her father looked around, uncertain. It's just over here that I think you should have a look. Joseph beckoned for her to follow up a set of steps leading to the balcony over a kind of amphitheater. Katie followed his lead and paused at the far wall. This was my section and I wanted to keep it under wraps until you had a chance to see it before anyone else. Katie stepped closer to examine the wall under its light. 
It was there, in the ancient darkened depths under the deserts of Egypt, in a place that hadn't seen the light of day in ages, that Katie saw the now earliest form of human handwriting, paragraphs of her own cursive writing upon the stone wall amidst the scratch of her former host's notations. This concludes Episode 7 of the Apocalypse Theater Podcast. I can't wrap this up without giving credit where credit is due. This tale was inspired by H.P. Lovecraft's short story, Shadow Out of Time. Consider it my 21st century reboot of the 50-page epic masterpiece. And if you enjoyed my version, I urge you to get the Halicon edition of the ebook or paperback of Lovecraft's version that's available on Amazon. That's it. Thanks, everyone. See you next month. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was written, edited, and produced by Benjamin Allen. To support us, like, subscribe, download one of my audiobooks, or check out the donation page on my website at ekpublishingmedia.com. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media production 2020.